Welcome to Catholic Conversations. Uh, this is Adrian Fonseca, your host with Max Molinax, Hello. Uh, talking again about uh, sacred music. Hello. Specifically, we'll be going over Sacrosanctum Concilium. Uh, what is Sacrosanctum Concilium for people who don't know? Well, first of all, are you enjoying that beer? Yeah, um, it's great. What is uh, it? Hofbrauf uh, original, right? Yeah, we're right now we're at uh, a restaurant near our university uh, grabbing a and not a pint, maybe I twelve ounce. Twelve ounce. Yeah, I have a little bit of a beer. Uh, talk over Sacrosanctum Concilium because that's what uh, all cool Catholics do. This is what rad treads do. They uh, grab a pint and uh, sit around and talk about sacred music. Yep, that's what all the cool kids do. Yeah. So if you're not doing it, you're not on the team. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Can't do it. So Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, the document on the sacred liturgy. From the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II, which everybody uh, everybody thinks is the council that um, brought the church up to date, um, but actually that's not true. No, no. What is it? What it did it do then? Well, it didn't really change very much at all. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I encourage everyone to go read all the documents from Vatican II, starting with Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, it basically just kind of restated the the things that all of the scholars from the last and previous sixty years were were already saying. Really? Yeah. So, uh, what did it say that was different? Uh, it allowed so sacrosanctum concilium does allow for certain things in the mass uh, for the vernacular to be used at certain points in the mass. Um, we can see that in paragraph. 56 uh, sorry 54 in masses which are celebrated with the people a suitable place may be allotted to their mother tongue this is to apply in the in the first place to the readings and the common prayer but also as local conditions may warrant those parts which pertain to the people according to the norm laid down in article 36 of this constitution so it gives a here you go. It gives a hierarchy on the back, a hierarchy to the sort of things that should be first proclaimed in the vernacular if you're going to use it at all. So it's saying that um, that not that everything needs to be in English or right. in the vernacular, but certain things could be in the vernacular. Right. And remember, this is pre Novus Ordo. This is pre Mass of Paul the Sixth. So, because this is 1963 to that this is released, and the Novus Ordo came out what 67 and 69. Oh, 69. Yeah. Um, and so, so this is imagine traditional Latin Mass with readings in the vernacular. Really? Yeah. Okay. See, um, that makes sense. Or the Common Prayer, which that's in quote. I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that. Um, but also, as local conditions may warrant, to those parts which pertain to the people. So, according to pastoral need, um, the vernacular can be expanded to other parts of the Mass. But ideally, it's just the readings and the common prayer. The common prayer probably refers to what? The collect? Things like that? Maybe. It can't be the prayers of the people because that didn't exist back then. Right. So, um, I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. But look at this next paragraph. 
Nevertheless, steps should be taken so that the faithful may be able to also say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. So like the Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus and things like that. The responses, so et cum spiritu tuo, mm. dominus vobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo. Um, the responses at the readings, although in the old Mass those don't exist. But yeah, so the Sanctus, Anustei, all that. The Gloria. Um, and wherever a more extended use of the mother tongue within the Mass appears desirable, regulation laid down in Article 40 of this Constitution is to be observed. So uh, you can look at those if you want to see what they say. So you said you wanted to go over Paragraph 2 of Chapter 6, Sacrosanto Concilium. Yeah. Uh, what is that? What is that Paragraph 2? Why paragraph is it important? Paragraph 2 is, is from... Um, this is actually not from paragraph two of chapter six. It's from paragraph two of the whole document. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is like right at the top of the document. Okay. So what is it? Let's read it for the liturgy through which the work of our redemption is accomplished. Most of all in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist is the outstanding means whereby the faithful may express in their lives and manifest to others, the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true church. Thoughts on that? Um, We're not done with the paragraph, but that's sentence one. Interesting. So the, I think it's important, uh, the quote, through which the work of our redemption is accomplished. Mm-hmm. Because um, the liturgy isn't just like a gathering, a communion meal, as or just like getting together to eat a cookie. It's uh, a work of redemption uh, is actually being accomplished at the liturgy every yep. single time. So I think that that stood out to me. Yeah. And it's the outstanding means whereby the faithful may express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of the Christ and the real nature of the true church. So it's where we celebrate Christ. Sounds a little exclusionary to say the true church. Oh, it's capital C church also. Wow. Yeah. So it's, we're not like... So this doesn't mean... So Vatican II didn't say that all religions are the same. Haha. <laughs> so there is one true church, apparently. Wow. Yeah, believe Go it or figure. not. Um, so... Anyway, continuing on, it is of the essence of the church, capital C, that she be both human and divine, visible and yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation, present in this world and yet not at home in it. And she is all these things in such wise that in her the human is directed and subordinated to the divine, the visible likewise to the invisible, action to contemplation and to this present world to that city yet to come which we seek that's a money line right there all right what did, what did, what did you just read can you uh, summarize that yeah um, we are to be in the world but not of the world essentially that the church well back in the beginning the church uh, is to be human and divine visible and yet what does in, it mean to be human and divine so it's comprised of human parts in a visible manner but it but the power behind it is divine so it's kind of like saying that god so the church is holy because christ is holy yeah so the church is divine because christ is the head of the church yes exactly and so it's both human and divine because jesus is human and divine and we are human and he is divine right the church is the body of christ okay 
human and divine, right? Visible and yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation. I like that one because uh, eager to act, so eager to do things and yet intent on praying, on contemplation. That comes first. Present in this world and yet not at home in it. That to me, that line right there um, really gets at a lot of the post-Vatican II hymns Mm-hmm. Especially like with the ones that we looked at a few weeks ago. Not of this world. Gather us in. Um, these social justice hymns that seem to ignore the eschaton, as you said. Mm-hmm. Forget that Forget this is end. not our home. Right. right. St. Therese said, the world is thy ship and not thy home. Right. Which is beautiful imagery. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful imagery, especially because the church fathers would often um, equate the church with the ark. Uh, meaning not Noah's the Ark of the Ark. Covenant, but Noah's Ark. Yeah. Yeah. And outside of Noah's Ark, everyone else gets flooded and dies. So, yeah, the yep. ship is uh, not our home. The bark, the bark of Peter, all these, all these images. Um, okay. And then it says, and she is all these things in such wise that in her the human is directed and subordinated to the divine. So divine is above human. The visible likewise to the invisible, invisible above visible, action to contemplation, contemplation is above action, and present uh, in this present world is subordinated to that city yet to come, which we seek, like we were just talking about. Well, it's interesting because uh, I was talking to Emily in the last podcast uh, or a few podcasts ago that uh, we were talking about that. Uh, contemplation and the Dominican uh, mis- message and the Dominican charism is to contemplate the mysteries of God and after contemplating the mysteries of God to take those contemplations and share them with the world to contemplate and share the, comp- the, the contemplations and so the action is to comp- contemplation and so um, I think that's interesting to see the uh, the equating of uh, action and contemplation that yeah. it's always subordinate to exactly exactly um while the liturgy daily builds up those who are within within ooh, while the liturgy daily builds up those who are within into a holy temple of the lord into a dwelling place for god in the spirit to the mature measure of the fullness of christ at the same time it marvelously strengthens their power to preach christ and thus shows forth the truth shows forth the church to those who are outside as a sign lifted up among the nations under which the children of God may be gathered together until there is one sheepfold and one shepherd. So God does not will a plurality of religions? I would say not. Awesome, because he's trying to gather together his scattered children. Under which the scattered children of God may be gathered together until there is one sheepfold so and one shepherd. What Jesus wants is to gather us in. (laughs) (laughs) So, but... This is the, the second paragraph of the first document to be released during Vatican II. This is the first document promulgated. Really? So yeah. I didn't know it was the first document. Yeah. Wow. Um, and immediately it dispels the myth that Vatican II says all religions are the same or that people who claim Vatican II as their justification for saying something like that, they're right. just wrong. Because Vatican II didn't say anything like that. Vatican II is very in continuity with the Catholic Church, with the tradition of the church. I mean, I think it could be better, like better uh, wording, like Taylor better Marshall clarity. says. Some there's some weaponized ambiguity in here, but uh, 
But at face value, there's nothing wrong with it so far anyways. Um, okay, so then what does all that have to do with sacred music? Good question. What does it have to do with sacred music? Um, well, think about it. The divine, in the church, the divine is subordinated to the, the, the human is subordinated to the divine, right? All right. Um, the invisible is subordinated, you know what I mean? Visible is subordinated to the invisible. Action is subordinated to contemplation. All these things, so the, the things which hearken towards heaven and the eschaton, those are to be preferred in the church, right? Right. And so, so what does that have to do with music? Shouldn't our music reflect the same thing? Ah, but how? By not being of the world. So how do we do that? Possessing qualities that you don't find. Um, just like we talked about with Pius X, the first necessary quality of sacred music is sanctity, meaning that it excludes from itself profanity both in its text and in its style, so that it is not something that you might hear on the radio. So I have a question then. Uh-huh. Um, having trumpets and pianos and things like that in the mass. What's wrong with that? Well, I think we talked about the last time about appropriating a appropriating uh, instruments. Right? right. But the, so I, but it's pretty common in churches today to have at least pianos, maybe not trumpets, but pianos in church. I think, tr- I think pianos are a problem because number one, they're hard to sing with. Uh, just from a practical standpoint, really, I didn't they're know that. not loud enough to where uh, they they don't need to be amplified. You always have to mic them. Really? Yeah, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and also because they're uh, they're percussive instruments, meaning when you play a key, it 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 um, isn't so just a pitch. It's also a, for someone who doesn't really know much about music. Um, when I look at a piano and look at an organ, yeah. they seem really similar, except an organ has a giant pipes attached to it. They're so sim- <laughs> explain to me the difference between the two and explain to me why one is more dignified than the other. Um, well, I'm just talking practically. The piano is hard to sing with because it has percussive sounds attached to it. So it sounds like a, it's similar to a drum in that it, it if you can hear this, it has a knocking, right? Whenever the, the key hits the string, it emits a sound that is separate from the actual pitch. And so that's why you can play, you can, um, you can accompany someone on just the piano because it keeps a beat um, in its name. You know, you'll know what I mean whenever you hear it. So when, <laughs> when you're in a big acoustic space that bounces sound all over the place, if you have an instrument like the piano that already has its own reverberator, then it creates a cacophony. Uh, what's a cacophony? Uh, a mess. Oh, okay. A musical mess. So, the is the organ not a percussive instrument? It's not. No. What is it? It's just it's pitch. That's it. Explain that to me. All you I, hear is, I don't know, you I don't hear is the note. You it's, don't hear an, an accompanying knock or something like that. So it's. Uh, so is it a wind instrument? Um, yes, but not really. It functions similar. Similarly. So, so the only, I mean, the only similarity between it and a piano is that they have a keyboard, oh, but the okay. way they produce sound is different. Okay. Pianos are percussive because they actually hit, there's actually a string that, that, that a little hammer hits whenever you, whenever you play a key. Oh, okay. So it's more like organ is, yeah, makes sound using air. Okay. So an organ is similar to the voice. Yes. Because it pushes uh, air 
through pipes, kind of yeah. like the how uh, in the voice exactly. we push air through our throats. Exactly. So anyway, that's why it's hard to sing with a piano because it's percussive, so it it reverberates on its own. So if you have that in a space where it's either mic'd or in a, in a live acoustical space, then it's hard. Then the piano will sound like it's it's going to be way ahead of you when it actually sounds like it's behind, right? Um, what, what do you mean? Sounds like it's behind you. Like, like what you hear is going to be um, a couple of seconds, depending on the space behind oh. what where the where the pianist actually is in the music. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Oh, because you have to factor in the fact that sound travels. Anyway, besides that, the piano is not good because we still associate it with with uh, pop music like um, Billy Joel or like even like Bruno Mars, some of the more modern guys. So was there ever a time whenever the organ was not used in churches? Yeah, before Charlemagne. Why? Uh, because it didn't actually exist in Europe. It was brought by... Someone told me this. I can't remember. It was brought by someone from the East. Some some people from the East. Really? And it was appropriated for use in the court of Charlemagne. Interesting. Then they decided, well, if we can use this in the court of our king, we should be able to use this in the, the court of our king. Of our, our real king. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So moving forward, um, the musical tradition of the church. Yeah. Paragraph 112. This is paragraph one of... Um, Chapter 6 of Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is on sacred music. The musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than that of any other art. The main reason for this preeminence is that, as sacred song united to the words, it forms a necessary or integral part of the solemn liturgy. Wow. So he's saying that the uh, music, sacred music, is more important than any other art. Yeah. Why? It's more important than the Sistine Chapel. That's crazy. Why? Because it unites the text of the Mass and sacred scripture to music. So the so art um, is a visual depiction of, of the words, right? But music actually uses the words themselves. Okay. So the idea that... Um, so the, immediately when you say that, it gives me the imagery of creation and, and Genesis. Right, the logos. Where the logos, right. Because uh, Augustine gives this great analogy, and all analogies fall short, but... The, this analogy he gives is the uh, that God the Father is like the the head, uh, and God uh, the Son is the word spoken to for creation, and the Spirit is a breath that pushes forth the word spoken. Yep. And so, uh, in that way, it sounds like music reflects that exactly. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the primacy of of the logos, the word, it's a participation in that in that creative act. Um. Holy Scripture indeed has bestowed praise upon sacred song. And the same may be said of the fathers of the church and of the Roman pontiffs, who in recent times, led by St. Pius X, have explained more precisely the ministerial function supplied by sacred music in the service of the Lord, which we looked at last time. All right, so let's move forward. Therefore, sacred music is to be considered more holy in the proportion as it is more closely connected with the liturgical action. So that it has to do with what's going on at the altar. Whether it adds delight to prayer, fosters unity of minds, or or confers greater solemnity upon the sacred rites. 
but the church approves of all forms of true art having the needed qualities and admits them into divine worship. So immediate, so we see the same language of St. Pius X here. Right, because we were talking last time about what is true art yeah. and um, how we can incorporate true art into the liturgy. Yeah. Um, accordingly, the sacred council, keeping to the norms and precepts of ecclesiastical tradition and discipline, and having regard to the purpose of sacred music, Pius X again, which is the glory of God and sanctification of the faithful, decrees as follows. So right there it says, keeping in tradition with the church. Um, yeah, we're good. Um, keeping with the tradition of the church, then they're going to say everything that they say after this, right? Um, liturgical, what's it? Go ahead. All right, so I'm uh, looking and reading through it uh, as we're talking about it, and I think it's notable whenever he talks about the assistance of sacred ministers in the active participation of the people. Um, and I'm kind of trying to figure out what they mean by the sacred ministers and active participation of the people. We talked a little bit last time about active participation, um, but what about sacred ministers? So is sacred ministers referring to the, in paragraph 113, is he referring to the holy orders, diaconate, the priesthood, episcopate, or lay people, lay ministers, what is it referring to? I think it can, it can, it can refer to all of those. Sometimes they use that word and uh, that term interchangeably. Um, they can, it can mean the priests, you know, the celebrant, the deacon, but it can also mean the choir or the acolytes. Um, but I think here it's talking about the uh, celebrant, the deacons, as well as the choir. Okay, so there's making a distinction between the sacred ministers as people with holy and, orders, yes, and, and, then, the, and then the people in the pews. Okay, yeah. but then but he's they saying that all people, um, the sacred ministers and the people uh, in the congregation yeah. are called to uh, solemnly in song to worship. Exactly. So um, does that mean that we should all sing during mass and that uh, God uh, wants us to give our voice back to Him? Yeah, it means, well, you missed that first part, that liturgical, well, maybe you didn't, but liturgical worship is given a more noble form when the divine offices are celebrated solemnly in song. So tell me, Adrian, um, when you were growing up in whatever uh, regular suburban parish you went to, how many times did you, did they have a sung mass where the priest sang the responses, you know, sang with his part? Well, actually, we always did that at my parish. Really, growing up, yeah, we had a our, our priest would uh, constantly. He would always sing it. He's actually really. Um, he was really strict about the way he ran mass. Interesting. Uh, so it's actually pretty good. Okay. So, but what about otherwise? Well, I guess it depends on where you go. Uh, I've been to parishes where the priest will not sing at all. I've been to parishes where he'll sing certain parts and not other parts. And I've been to parishes um, where he tries to sing it and it sounds really bad, but you know, like A for effort. You know, the church used to not ordain priests who could not sing. Really? It was that important. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was uh, actually people were kind of upset with the FSSP whenever they removed that restriction. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So that's interesting. And now, the East, Eastern churches, most of them anyways, um, except maybe the Ruthenians, but most of them keep that 
that restriction. Well, that's surprising to me. I didn't know that. Yeah. The, um, but yeah, so I think it's important. I think, um, it depends. It really depends. I think a lot of people seeing the parts of the mass because they think it just sounds pretty, but I don't think many of the people or the priests even understand the theological significance of having to sing, uh, portions of the mass. Well, I'll tell you my experience. I never, I can remember, I can, I can probably count on one hand the amount of times they sang mass at my church. Um, and what we're talking about is not having songs at mass. We're talking about the priest singing his parts of the mass. Right. The people like responding saying, in song. Right. The response is like, um, and Lord be with you. Right. And so like the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Yeah. Things like that. Okay. Um, yeah. I grew up, I can count on one hand the number of times that happened. That's crazy. Yeah. But wow. what the norm in most parishes is, is my experience where, um, the same thing that was happening before Vatican II continued after Vatican II. Right, because so, the main problem was what? The low masses? The pro- the, there was a big problem with the proliferation of the low mass, even on Sundays. So where instead of having, you know, one high mass or so, they had 12 low masses that were sped through uh, where the, in which the people would sing vernacular hymns throughout a lot of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I can see how that could work out because... Um, not work out as in being good, but I can see how that would happen because um, a low mass is much shorter than a uh, a daily Novus Ordo mass. Not necessarily, actually. Really? No. It's huh. actually, I mean, it depends on how you're ce- who's celebrating. Okay. Um, not necessarily. It can be much shorter, I think, if you speed through it. Um, but uh, But what we have after the council then is spoken mass in many most places spoken mass even on sundays with four vernacular hymns one of my teachers the the four hymns sandwich the four hymn sandwich what what on earth does that mean you have your hymn at the procession right right got it then you have your hymn at the uh at the offertory or the presentation of the gifts uh-huh then you have your hymn at communion okay and then you have your sending forth the sending forth, okay, like the <laughs> go make a difference. You can make a difference. Like yeah, that? the, the uh, yeah the recessional hymn. Okay, okay, got it. So I did not experience that. What I experienced was that we would just have a song over uh, throughout the entire mass. Not not four, but literally they'd make it so that way there was not even a moment of silence. Really? Yeah. And so whenever people would go off to receive communion in the choir they would have half the choir stay behind in order that they would be singing. Wow. So there was like no silence. So there was not four songs throughout the mass. Oh. It was like 10. Wow. Yeah. That's so, insane. Okay. That's actually wrong. It's wrong because I'm looking for it here. It's somewhere in here. Yeah. So I just, uh, um, I think it was a pretty common look experience. At look at this. Paragraph 30 of Sacrosanct uh, Concilium. <sighs> to promote active participation, the people should be encouraged to take part by means of acclamations, responses, psalmody, and antiphons, and songs, as well as by actions, gestures, and bodily attitudes. And at the proper times, all should observe a reverent silence. Wow. See, I didn't. The first time I ever went to a Latin Mass was a, like I said, a low Mass, and it was very quiet. And it. I was really surprising to me, especially because I was not used to silence. 
every moment of the uh, the English masses that I would go to was filled with noise. There was never a moment to actually reflect. And then even if you try to like not sing and just pray, the amount of music it just kind of penetrates your mind and it's hard to think of anything except what's happening uh, by the choir. Yeah, yeah, right. There's a difference between... So if you go to a fully sung traditional Latin mass, there's still a lot of silence. Yeah, there's the tons of silence. Because the canon is said silently. You know, the uh-huh. Eucharistic prayer is said silently. Um, but man, I thought that was a, just a money line. I think it's interesting too because um, I think we have an innate desire for silence, even if we uh, kind of are revulsed by it at first. Because oh, yeah. for one, for instance, I was on a retreat with my students from uh, Saint Augustine. Um, shout out to my students at Saint Augustine. So we were there, and um, during adoration, we had a really long adoration, which was really great. And the reason why we had a long adoration was because people were going to confession and the priests weren't leaving because they were wanting to stay and hear the confessions, which was awesome. So they're doing their job. Yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. Uh, here's the problem, though. They said adoration was uh, terrible in in the fact that the person who was singing the songs never stopped. They sang for the entire like three hours we were in, uh, in adoration. There was uh, a total of maybe 10 minutes of silence while the person went Man. to go get some water and uh, cast their breath while they went to go sing another song. Man. And so they were like, yeah, I couldn't concentrate on prayer. All I could do is hear the music and I didn't, and the music was okay, I guess. Um, and so we're yeah. not singing for the sake of singing, right? We're singing for the, at the service of the liturgy. So commentary. I mean, it's just wrong. Why? Because musicians are liturgical ministers where we take part in the sacred action. We have a greater part of it in it than the people. We have a duty to foster prayer. And if you're playing the entire time, then you're failing because, as it says here, at the proper times, all should observe a reverent silence. Right. Everybody should read St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's Last Retreat. Uh, the first day, she talks about about silence, and it's beautiful. Okay, so you have to go soon. Yeah. So, what are the last things that need to be that you want to get across about Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, especially on sacred music? Well, I just go back to uh, paragraph one sixteen. Yeah, paragraph one sixteen. The church acknowledges that Gregorian chant is especially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. Awesome. Yeah. So it's in uh, Vatican II. Need I say more? Yeah. Um, it's pretty pretty simple. So pride of place. And so um, Vatican II itself uh says very clearly that this is the norm that is set up for the church. And so yeah. people who do not follow that, because you last time you were saying, yeah, most people don't follow the uh teaching the on Sacrosanctum Concilium, even the uh even some of the traditional people. Uh yeah, what was I Yeah, that's right. So like uh I've never actually experienced this myself. But I've heard that in some Society of St. Pius X communities, the music is uh, all 50s schmaltz. Like, if you know 
um, bring flowers of the rarest. Really? Yeah. And other kinds of th- songs that you feel like Elvis would have recorded. Whoa. You know? That's surprising. Yeah. I would never thought, uh, would have thought that. Yeah. Um, what else? I, d- I never had to endure those, but I can't, I saw, I don't know the names, but, um, but it's pretty, this document is pretty simple. I encourage everyone to read it from the beginning. Yeah, it's pretty short. And another thing is, um, look at, we'll do this sometime. We need to go through the traditional mass and compare it with, and so we'll go through it and we'll say, um, having read this document, how does one take this and come up with the Novus Ordo? Right. Because this Sacrosanctum Concilium hardly changes anything. Mm-hmm. It simply clarifies some point. It, it hardly changes anything in the um, in the actual rubrics of the Mass. Mm-hmm. And so the changes seems to be un, in keeping with uh, yeah. Sacrosanctum Concilium in Vatican II. Exactly. It was interesting. Exactly. Yeah, so I think that'd be a fun thing to do, uh, an interesting thing to do as well. Right. How do you get um, the traditional missile and then read this and come up with a Novus Ordo? Because so, they're so wildly different. In the last few minutes that we have, I want to ask you a few questions. Okay. So, uh, one question is, uh, what about men and women in choirs? What is the ideal? What is okay? What is valid? What is licit? So, as I understand it, this is why choir lofts exist, so that women can sing too. Um, women are, traditionally are not allowed in the sanctuary, and traditionally the scola would have been located in the sanctuary. It would have been all men. Um, and by sanctuary, I mean the chancel or the area where the altar is. In traditional churches, it's more easily recognizable because they have a communion rail that denotes the nave versus the chancel. Okay. Um, but that's why choir lofts were developed, so that women could sing as well. Okay. Interesting. Because the choir loft is usually at the back of the church, mm. opposite the altar. Okay, That's and why so I think they're a good idea. So, where should a choir be located in a church? I mean, there's a couple of. It depends on the circumstances. Depends on what you know. It depends on a few things, but typically, I think choir lofts are. They solve so many problems logistically. Um, for example, I, I'm not a fan of choir areas that are sort of like to the side of the altar, mm. because especially in churches that are at least halfway in the round, uh, if you're sitting. It, if you're sitting on the far opposite end of the church from the choir area, you're basically like staring at the choir the entire time. Right. And, um, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's very odd. It's really odd. And it takes the focus of what the focus should be, which right. is the sacred action on the altar. And um, then for the, um, people coming up to seeing the songs and the Psalms mm-hmm. and, uh, things like that. And they go up to the altar. How was, how was that supposed to go? Um, I mean, I would argue that you can do all of that from the choir loft, that people are not so musically uh, idiotic that you need to wave your hand in front of them to tell them when to sing, that you can do that from the loft behind them. And therefore it's not about you. They're not looking at you. It's just sound washing over them. Right. There's musical things that you can do to indicate, okay, now it's time for you to come in. It's time for the people to sing. Okay. Right. And then your opinion of microphones? Mixed. 
Uh, like mixed drinks? I mean... <laughs> no, what do you mean? Well, they're necessary in churches with carpet. But then again, no, shir- no church should have carpet. <laughs> so, because carpet sucks up sound. Okay. Um, so ideally... So ideally, no. No. You don't need a microphone in a properly constructed building that... Uh, that lets the sound travel on its own. Mm. You don't need a microphone. Okay, so the ma- the you should just be. It should be the the bare voice. It should be the bare voice, right? Okay, unadulterated, no amplifiers, nothing. All right, last things. What are some common abuses that you would like to point out and be like, yeah, this these are abuses. We need to uh, talk about fixing that with music. Yes. Uh. Oh, a big one is. Uh, so people are used to hearing the entrance song at the beginning of Mass, like in the procession. Right. Or the communion hymn. But they never hear what the missile actually says to do, which is the entrance chant, uh-huh. the introit, the entrance antiphon, so, which is set to Gregorian chant. So what could be done is if you want to have a, a processional hymn, then you do that while the choir, while the, the ministers are processing. Then, if it's a solemn mass, which ideally every parish should have one solemn mass at least on Sundays, um, while the priest is incensing the altar, then you sing the entrance chant, oh. the entrance antiphon, or you just replace the processional hymn with. But I like processional hymns, but not in place of the chant. Okay, right? and same thing as communion antiphon. It should happen. Right after the priest says the Agnus Dei, oh. um, and there's also offertory antiphons. They also exist, even though they're not in the missal. Interesting. They exist. Um, they're specifically for the choir to sing. Okay. Rather than the priest to say. All right. Well, and so I'll... you might hear the priest at some daily masses. God willing, you might hear him say things like before mass begins. Right when it's like today, we're going to be talking about no, no, how- no, no, no. I'm talking about. Oh, no, no, not I'm that. talking about if he just comes up there and says some what you might think is some random piece of scripture. Oh, like he's probably he's actually saying the entrance antiphon. Oh, but he's just saying it. He's just saying it. it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. Same thing at communion. Like I know uh, Father Pilsner does that. Okay. Um, okay. Which is good. Um, I would that that more priests would do that. Another abuse I would fix is uh, another another abuse I, w- I would fix is um, I can't think right now. <laughs> Can you think of any? No, I, I think we covered a lot of them already. So anything that is extra, I think we got most of them. Um, I know another one that I would fix. Okay. So at an unnamed parish around town, there's often... so. There's going to be a concert in celebration of a big event in this parish's oh, life. Oh, I know exactly okay. what you're about to say. And it's going to be good music, dignified music, real music by famous composers. And yet at this same parish, during the Mass, the music that is used is this most banal, kind of childish, uh, childish stuff. That, and so my question is: Well, if we can do dignified music in a concert, why can't we also do dignified music in the liturgy, mm, in the yeah. mass? Why do we have to dumb it down? Absolutely, that's the biggest thing. Don't dumb it down. Uh-huh. Okay, 
the other thing is whenever they're doing concerts at churches that whenever uh, most priests will leave the Eucharist in the tabernacle and then have the choir be on the in the oh, sanctuary. Gosh, yeah. The chairs the, up by the altar. Oh my goodness. Yes. Crazy. Anyway, this we'll, is why choir lofts are a thing yeah. or, cha- or choir stalls like at Walsingham. Yeah. Um, choir stalls where, where typically the, the choir would sit during the liturgy that they outlined the altar. They don't, they're not in front of it. Mm. So, yeah. So anyway, we will close out with that. And, uh, if you have any, uh, questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at Fonseca production at gmail.com. That's Fonseca F O N S E C A. Uh, be sure to like, and subscribe to our, uh, podcast, share it with uh, people that you think would be interested. Uh, share it with your local music director or your, uh, the people in your choir. Um, and let us know if you have any questions and uh, absolutely. So subscribe at anywhere you listen to podcast and we will see you again uh, next week and enjoy our new um, intro and outros in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.